Hi everyone, welcome to Merch TV. We've got a special episode today um, for Time to Talk Day and I'm here with my colleagues who will introduce themselves in a minute. Um, you can't join in in the usual way tonight because we're not live. This is a recorded session. However, we'd still love to hear your contributions. So still join in via Facebook, Unite MHNA page, or go on to Twitter and follow the hashtag MHTV. We will be monitoring there and we will respond to any comments or questions, just not live. So I'm going to go over now to um, Michaela and Tanya to introduce themselves. Today we're talking about Time to Talk. I'll be here as an MHTV presenter, but I'll also be here as a colleague working in health and justice. So expect tonight's episode, we'll have a bit of a health and justice flavour. So I'll first go over to Michaela to introduce herself. Michaela. Thanks, Vanessa. Um, so, hi everyone. My name is Michaela. I am the National Patient and Family Engagement Lead for Practice Plus Group's Health Injustice Division. Thank you. Nice to have you with us. Um, Tanya? Hi. Hi, good morning, everybody. My name is Tanya Rodriguez. I'm a consultant clinical psychologist and I'm the National Head of Psychological Therapies for um, Health Injustice. Thanks. Nice to have you both with us. It's, it's lovely having colleagues on MHTV. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so today we're here to talk about Time to Talk Day, which is on Thursday, the 2nd of February. We just thought it'd be a nice opportunity to um, to come online and, and share some thoughts ourselves about mental health, both how we um, manage our own mental health and the things that we use to look after ourselves and others. And then also a little bit about um, some of the work that we're doing in health and justice. So, um, Michaela, I wondered if you wanted to um, to make a start um, just by sharing some thoughts around mental health. Sure. So, um, part of my role at work is to lead on... Um, health promotion events which follow some of the national campaigns um, including time to talk day um, from a personal perspective i think that learning to have conversations about mental health and, and mental well-being is something for me which has certainly developed over time as i've got older and maturer and kind of been exposed to different people within my life so um, as a child I really would never find the words to talk about how I was feeling how I was mentally my well-being um, I've, I've come from quite a, a traumatic childhood where we didn't really have conversations about how we were feeling. Most of the conversations in my house as a child was shouting, screaming and swearing. Um, and actually, if, I, if I'm completely honest, um, and I was thinking about this yesterday, some, something for me is, and I saw a post on Instagram which really got me thinking, and it was a post that um, said to reframe anger as a form of personal protection and, mm. and that really got me thinking so 
in my house, I've got two sisters uh, uh, and our parents were um, both addicted to heroin when we were children. And for me and my sisters, whoever shouted the loudest was the person that got heard. So whoever just kept on shouting and screaming the loudest was the, was the child that really got whatever need it was met. Uh, and I yeah. think moving into adulthood, even, even in a professional working environment, letting go of being the person that shouts the loudest mm. in a professional environment is really difficult for me. Uh, and that's not because... I've got an anger problem that's mm. simply because the way I grew up for my whole life was knowing that if I was the one that shouted the loudest I'd be the one that that got my needs met so having conversations about how I really feel have always been difficult not difficult but I, but I've never really done it um so I'm I'm in a deep learning curve of understanding my own needs and understanding how as an adult I work with other people and myself to get those needs met which doesn't involve shouting the loudest <laughs> yeah I think that's just so one well it's just so honest of you to say that and I think this is the issue isn't it that We've, we live in a culture where um, if you work in mental health or healthcare, you don't talk about your own mental health. And there's an assumption that we've all got it together. And in a way, I think that kind of creates a double stigma around mental health because we work in mental health, but we're expected to have it together ourselves. So if any of us need any help in our own lives around mental health for ourselves, our children, our families, then it's, it's doubly difficult, isn't it, to access any support? And then on top of that, I think it others other people as well. So it put places people in the other position because it, it tells people that we're the professionals. We don't have mental health. So we're talking about another group of people who who do have mental health. And it's absolute nonsense, isn't it? Because Absolutely. we've all got, you know, um, our own baggage and our own lives and, you know, our own negative adverse experiences and you know our own continued struggles and stresses I'm sure none of us on this call go to work every day when life's perfect in the background there's always things isn't there you know you you know I don't Vanessa because no, <laughs> the amount exactly. of times I had to, to call you about my crisis so you, you know that's definitely not true um I think it's just so refreshing to hear Michaela speak because first of all it's a privilege to be able to to get to know that story which mm -hmm. we don't always talk about and and therefore I think as professionals, we forget that we come with a story. We have our own story to live through. Um, and that story plays out in our relationships with our colleagues. And it gets triggered by the conversations we hear and, and the dynamics within teams or the kind of clients or the kind of patients that we work with. Um, and we forget that we always, in either one or two modes, we, we either in threat mode where we, we're scared of something and that fear makes us respond in some ways, whether it's to work harder, to do things quicker um, because we pushed, um, mm. or, or we're in protective mode where everything we do is about defending ourselves. Mm. And that kind of plays out in, in everything that we do every day. And as professionals, we like to 
sometimes we like to pretend that these things don't affect us or that we somehow better than ever, or we should be better than everybody else is at, at dealing with those things. But mm-hmm. we know that at the end of the day, we may have perhaps for some of us in this journey at sometimes um, different from other times, we may have a bit more insight. So I always tell my, I always, I always joke. And I always say that the best, the, the best person to tell me or to remind me how stressed I am um, are usually the kids at home because kids are, are so honest and just tell you straight yeah. and they just cut through everything um, mm-hmm. and, and when you know I, I remember my son sometimes saying you've been very shouty lately and you think oh god that sounds awful um, yeah. and you think, have I been very shout? because you don't notice that you know but other people around you do notice that. And I think mm-hmm. in families where we have, <clears throat> I guess, developed good, solid foundations that people can challenge each other because it's safe to do so, we 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 get that feedback. And that applies to teams that we work with because we become families too. And so mm-hmm. we need that sense of safeness and safety to be able to challenge each other and to challenge each other in the sense of reminding our colleagues in, in a compassionate and in a kind way that something mm. is a bit different with them. Yeah. But I'm not sure that we all feel comfortable in doing that. I think sometimes the stigma of mental health is still so ingrained within all yeah. of us, even as professionals, I, that yeah. sometimes, even when we spot a colleague, maybe not being so well, you, you very tentatively want to bring that up but you're also very worried that Mm -hmm. how people might take that because um I mean you you're probably even more familiar than 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 me about this because in in psychology we tend to be a bit more open but I Mm -hmm. think the stigma is that the minute you open up about struggling with something the first worry that we have is will I be seen as competent enough to do my job yeah yeah and so there's so many variables, you know, um, mm. in the jobs that we do. But I think I was just thinking about this. You know, the pandemic gave us in many ways a platform for all of us, maybe for the first time in a long, long time, for all of us from different backgrounds, different classes, different uh, different upbringings to be confronted with a situation that completely pushed us out of our comfort zone. Mm. And, and I think for the first time ever, we might have realized how things that happen around us have such a big impact on us. Mm. Because people that always, I guess, saw themselves as being strong enough, um, emotionally strong and resilient, did crumble during the pandemic, like we all did. Yeah. yeah. And I think for the first time, maybe we've realized that it's okay to talk about it, or at least we started to. We're definitely not quite there yet, but we've started, I think. Yeah, but also I think the thing is the pandemic wasn't a leveller, was it? People experienced the True. pandemic. So where I live, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by nature. I can go out and I can have a walk and, and I could do that throughout the pandemic. I did struggle in other ways. I was self-employed at the time. I wasn't entitled to, you know, any financial support. And I was at home with two children. So it was a huge struggle for me financially to pay my bills during the pandemic, if yeah. I'm honest. But, I did have I did have nature so I could go out walking but 
you know, some people have it worse, don't they? Some people are in a high rise flat. They've got no access to, um, you know, outside space. They might be single parents. They might be, you know, uh, seeking asylum from another country. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think, well, it for me, it like highlighted inequality as well as it highlighted that, you know, we're all in this together. Um, Very much so. So, yeah, Very and, I, and I'm just feeling, we're, we're still feeling the pandemic now, aren't we? I think people talk about you know I'm glad that's all over but from a mental health point of view it absolutely is not all over Mm -hmm. the number of you you know young people my own child included who now don't want to go to school because of not having to go to school throughout the whole pandemic period and there's an absolute tsunami of, of young people who are really struggling at the minute so I think we have to remember that the pandemic might be over in terms of physically being managed, but it's not over from a mental health point of view, is it, at all? Absolutely. And not to mention the amount of losses that people experienced and and the impact that it had. And I mean, we do know that certain communities got far more affected by the pandemic than others. We do know that certain workforces were far more affected than others. Mm. Um, we, we know that this idea, I mean, we we've been... You know, we've been working from home and some of us have the luxury to have access to technology. And so we can actually work from home. And that in itself is a luxury. But also the working from home with with a lot of its potential benefits, mm. it also has a lot of a lot of um, of detriments because there is a lack of connection. You know, yeah. we're all sitting in our little, you know, um, in little offices and spaces and talking through the screen um, and there is something about that human connection that gets lost. I think so. Yeah, and I think I was thinking about that when Michaela was making her point, because I was thinking, it, you know, if you find it difficult to kind of find a voice within the work environment, it can be quite difficult when you're on a on a Teams call. <laughs> and, you know, do I put my hand up? How long have I got my hand up for? You know, is anyone going to respond? I need, I need to say something here. It can be quite stressful at times. I mean, I find that as well. Especially then, if you don't know how to work all the buttons and, and where the icons go and where the emojis go and all of that. That is stressful enough for me. Yeah, but then I think uh, we've lost that informality. Like, you know, when I've worked in offices previously, you can get up, you can go into the kitchen, make a coffee, yeah. you into people there, you have a little chat with them. Um, often you get work done while you're making yeah. coffee, networking with other people, but we've lost that, haven't we? And I know we do have a balance at work and, and we're quite fortunate because we do have the opportunity to yeah. you know, up, don't we? But um, I think for some people who are doing that all the time and don't have that blended approach, it must be really tough and, and just tough um, being able to recognise when other people are, are struggling as well yeah. because you don't have that. I think, yeah, yeah I, I think that um, we've definitely moved past that now within within our organisation that we work for and, and the blended approach works well. But just from my own personal experience, I think um, I've always been fairly good at managing a work life balance. I mean, I like I like to be busy. I like to be kind of doing things often but I also like to be able to step away from from that and and have a break and the Mm. move between having a blended approach to work because I've always been in this role so I was always either traveling in an office or with the ability to work from home yeah so I didn't really think that I would struggle with 
working from home completely because I was fairly used to working in a solo role anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it was completely different for me. So obviously schools had closed down. Um, my fiance at the time had been furloughed mm. and there was no escape from anything. So there was no time for me to go out on my own, even for a walk, because I felt like I was leaving other people that were also in a, in a situation yeah. which was normal. Um, you couldn't you couldn't do the things that you'd normally do for your own self care. So going to the gym, seeing yeah. my sisters, and a combination of those things, and working in a room constantly for over a year in the same place where yeah. I just couldn't switch off. So I'd go into the, at five o'clock, I might go and make dinner, but then I'd come and sit in a room where my laptop was all set up. Yeah. And if I saw a little email icon, I couldn't help, but, but yeah. read it. even if, even if it wasn't important, even if I didn't know, it didn't really need to know what it was. And I, for the first time, had to have two weeks off work because I was just so unable to cope yeah, with yeah. just staying at home. Yeah. And it was, for me, I mean, I've never really had the opportunity to, to feel anxious or depressed but that isolation gave me that opportunity yeah. to feel that. Absolutely. And it, it really, really hit me hard to the point where, I mean, as a child, it was regular for me to wake up and have no bread and milk in the house. Mm. And kind yeah. of moving forward into adult life and as a mother, I never wanted to wake up in a house that didn't have milk or bread for yeah. us to have a cup of tea and breakfast and I remember yeah. one morning I woke up and I had no bread and I had no milk and mm. that just instantly brought me back and that was because I couldn't find the energy to go shopping yeah. because the yeah. anxiety of being yeah. in a supermarket yeah, and, yeah. and rushing to pack the shopping and, and move out of mm. the supermarket quickly that was yeah. too much for me. So when I woke up on that morning, I had to ring the doctors and and ring work and say I I just can't I just can't work at the moment. And I think what the point you made, Vanessa, about about children, my my daughter started year seven at the point of the pandemic. So she had she she missed that opportunity to make yeah. all those friends and those bonds. Uh, and then we moved house after a couple of years to a different town. So she moved school and I've let her have a few days off because she's got anxiety because yeah. she feels low. But yeah. I don't think I would ring work now. To, if I had a cold or I didn't feel well, I would really feel no hesitation to phone work and say, I'm not very well. I can't come in today. And yeah, Crystal. If my daughter's mental state isn't where it needs to be for her to go to school, as a mother to give her that protection and the care that she needs, I'll let her have the day off, and I will explain to school this is for her mental well-being. Good. But I think how we in a, in a working environment that stigma to phone up and say 
I'm not mentally well enough to go to work. Yeah. We're not there in terms of where we're at with, we're not physically well enough to come to work. That is so important. That is absolutely spot on. There's so much you've said in that because there's the modeling that we need to do to other people, you know, in the same way that you've just, you know, you're modeling something to your child that it's, it's okay to not feel a hundred percent. And sometimes you need to take some time for yourself and that is okay. And there's nothing wrong with you. You know, um, this is okay. We go through these stages where we might have a day where it's just too overwhelming. And if you take that time, you get your balance back and then you go back, you go back to school and you're modeling that. And I think we need to do the same at work to model that. Yeah. We should be modeling that to our colleagues and modeling that to the people we work with. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes I we, we struggle with that, don't we? We, mm. we struggle somehow to feel that it's okay. And I have to say, I'm a big culprit of that. And I'm, I'm slowly getting better because mm. um, sometimes we, we often say, you know, it is, what is it? Do as I do. No, do as I say, not as I do, because you know what you should be doing, but then you end up doing something different because perhaps you feel the pressure or you feel uncomfortable to be honest about things. Mm. And it took me me a long time to feel comfortable. I think that the ingredients to create that ability to just be honest is that to have people you work with that you trust. And I think we're lucky enough we, we have the luxury to work in a team that we can rely on each other. We can talk to each other. We can support yeah. each other and ask for support. And I think that's acceptable when people are having an off day to take that mm-hmm. time. Um, but yeah. it, you don't find that everywhere. No, I think what's good as well um, is the investment we've got in our organisation in the mental health and managers training. So I think that's really important because I think there's a culture um, you know, everywhere really around, uh, you know, managers and, and sort of performing, um, you know, monitoring performance and absence and things, but actually being able to, you know, skill managers up in having conversations with people who they employ about the mental health and understanding that if somebody's taking periods of time off work, it is actually, they might be saying it's because they've got, you know, recurrent viruses and things, but actually the reality is it's because they're struggling with the mental health and actually being able to understand that and help people through that rather than see, you know, take a more sort of punitive performance approach, I think is is really important. Of course, you know, there are times when, you know, you have to handle performance, but um, often there are underlying reasons, aren't they? There are things going on for people at home that we don't know about. I think the yeah. reality is as well that there's a you know disproportionate number of people in our jobs who take their own lives and in yes. in the healthcare professions generally. So, so I think you know the reality is as well being able to recognise when somebody's really struggling could actually you know save somebody's life potentially. And I think yeah. we shouldn't shy away from that. And that awareness needs to be out yes. there as well you know I, th- I, I think, think our organization is actually really good at in, in investing in in support supervision for the staff mm-hmm. I think we've yeah. got you know we've got the, the PNA framework which is um, which is actually a, a, a massive benefit for for all the staff in terms of mm-hmm. having that extra support but I think we we, we do a lot of the informal conversations. I think those informal conversations, sometimes when you talk about the word support, even that 
can be quite frightening to somebody that mm -hmm. feels, oh God, I have to go and talk about something. So that all these informal discussions that we often have, usually mm -hmm. in a corridor as you're about to go to the toilet or you're about to go to, you know, make a cup of coffee. Th those informal discussions can be really powerful. Um, mm. Feeling that there's somebody to to listen to you and to hear you, and I think yeah. if we apply all of that, if we apply all of this to the work that we do with patients um, and with, with people in prison that often have far more um, lack of opportunities to connect with others, to connect with family, to to yeah. connect with people within within their, their community in prison. If we apply the same approach where the informal discussions are meaningful, where the informal discussions focus on well-being as opposed to mental illness, because I think that's the biggest difference, really, that we want to make, yeah. that mental health is on, is, is on a continuum and yeah. that mental illness is not the same mm -hmm. as mental health. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so the more we invest in our mental health, the more we invest in our ability to develop ways to self-care and yeah. not self-care in terms of ourselves, but actually caring for people, being there for somebody else is something that is really good for us too. You know, we not long ago, one of our, um, in one of our meetings, we were talking about um, random acts of kindness. And it, it sounds so simple, but it, it goes a long, long way to, mm -hmm. to give a smile to someone that just looks a little bit down or, to you know to just offer a conversation um yeah we we i think we are in a position to to do so much more because we have more awareness of how important mm. investing in mental health is so i think it is important to talk about it and not to talk about it only when the problem occurs we need to be mm. talking about it way before that we need to be doing it part and part you know part and parcel of our day-to-day conversations to check in are we all okay you know it's yeah. Monday morning you know are we all okay do we have a good weekend anything happened mm. because yeah. just that just allowing somebody to say actually I had a really rubbish weekend um because of whatever problem and just acknowledging that sometimes that's all people want is for somebody just mm. to know my context you know if you understand my context if today I'm a little bit slower you might realize I haven't slept yet and 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 then you, you will you will be a bit more compassionate towards myself. Um, yeah. So it's so important. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think the point you made about working with patients as well, we have to accept that we work with people who often have had very very traumatic lives. And you know, as a mental health practitioner, you know, you you're taught and trained to, you know, be empathic to show compassion. But you know, having that compassion and empathy switched on all day can be really yeah. painful when you're absorbing other people's trauma and then as we've said when you've got the backdrop of your own you know possible trauma yeah. history personal stresses going on it can be incredibly difficult so I think that when we're thinking about compassion fatigue that we see in in practitioners I think we also have to be kind and understand where that's come from because for me it hasn't usually come from a bad place I think that you know, most people who go into mental health are inherently good people and caring and, and want to help people. But at some point they get lost. And often that's because of the trauma and, you yeah. know, learning how, how to deal with that. And as you said, you know, supervision, the work that um, our PA leads and supervision leads doing is great. And we've had Kate Wales on MHTV previously as well, um, talking to people informally. 
and just having that self-awareness I think yourself to recognize that you know you're struggling and sometimes you can struggle with somebody and you don't know why that they you know push your buttons or they remind you of somebody and I think being able to have that open conversation about that and understand that and and work through that and talk to your colleagues and say you know I'm struggling with this person and you know can you help me I think that's really important because ultimately that's going to benefit the patient as well and you know make sure they they deserve to receive from yeah. us as well and and find your own ways you know you can't probably see me through the screen but I'm, I'm fiddling with my mm-hmm. with my crystals as I do which is often a point of a it's always a, a bit of a joke as we sit in meetings and I'm and I'm playing with my crystals but it's really soothing for me and it's really yeah. grounding and when mm-hmm. I have to do something that and this is very nice and very informal, but it's still a little bit of anxiety provoking having to talk about something, you know, is going to be recorded. So I need to ground myself. I need yeah. to find a way to just curb that little bit of excitement and anxiety that <laughs> sometimes yeah. is a little bit twisted. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's okay to recognize that, that, you know, certain situations make me feel more anxious because they push me outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. how many years as a professional, mm. I mean, doesn't matter how many books you've read, those feelings, they come, they, they're just there. Yeah. You just have to learn to deal with them. And we all come from very different communities. You know, Michaela was talking about a story. I, I come from, from an experience of having lived through war. So when, when we mm. come back and then we're working with different groups of people, and especially when we're thinking about some of the work that we do with, with, our, with our detainees, we need to think about, you know, some of us have come from very similar backgrounds mm. and working with, with, with individuals that might have had very similar lived experiences to ourselves. And that yeah. will push buttons and that will trigger yeah. all sorts of things. Mm. So how do, we, how do we manage that? And, you know, the only way to really go through that is to have... Um, to have people in the organization, to have our managers that have an awareness of, you know, that, that there is um, cultural competence to help us talk about mm. difficult things that not mm. everybody might understand. I don't know if other colleagues might understand what it feels like to live through war. I do. Mm. I yeah. But yeah. I don't think that my experience of war is going to be exactly the same as other people because even though I did, I was still in a very privileged position. Yeah. I had a house. I had a family. Mm-hmm. Not everybody mm-hmm. had that. So yeah. I think we, we need to understand where we come from and we need to think about when we are supporting our staff and our teams, mm. what is it that we need to think about that we might not all the time consider as an important aspect to just ask about. Mm. And the same thing goes with, you know, with the, with the people that we work. People in prison, people in prison are in prison because something fail them on the outside okay we we often say you know they've committed a crime yeah of course they've committed a crime but they've committed a crime in circumstances that sometimes failed us we know a very high percentage of people in prison there are care leavers you know Mm, we have have a very high percentage of young people from the age of, of of 15 to 21 that come through the criminal justice system that are in foster care so something, mm-hmm. something has gone and missing mm-hmm. the lives there. And so we need to remember that any one of us had our circumstances be different. Mm-hmm. Up there? Yeah. Michaela, do you want to come in there? 
so yeah i think i think that it's probably just worth saying that that we do send people to prison on remand that that get released from court so, so we've got people in prison that that haven't offended that haven't committed yeah. any crimes mm. we imprison innocent people um so i i think that um certainly throughout the pandemic there was a perception that um the vaccine rollout perhaps shouldn't shouldn't go to prisoners over um the elderly population in, in the community mm. um prisons are a community and and i think yeah. that this this specific conversation is around a public health campaign um and from my experience of leading these within a prison setting prisons as communities of people are often excluded from public mm. health campaigns mm. so we will have a lot of targeted events where it's really easy to find resources for schools or colleges or or doctor surgeries and we can locate this health information and this education for community groups but what we see is prisons as a community are often excluded so um yeah Something which I find quite quite mm. funny is um, obesity is an issue within prisons, and mm. there was a, a whole government campaign for the traffic light system and for restaurants and take takeaway places to start putting the calories of meals um, on on menus. That isn't applicable to the canteen services within a prison. So prisons, again, are excluded from campaigns which are targeting health promotion. And, and I think this, this certainly includes mental well-being. So I think a point which I really want to make, which Tanya, um, you gave me the idea when you spoke about your crystal. So we'll all have our own ways about how we look after ourselves and, and, and what we mm. do to support ourselves when we're feeling anxious. So I really like Yankee candles. I really like mm. my Peloton bike. I'm in a mm. privileged position where these things I can afford and, and use. But prison is a very, very different landscape. Yeah. So yeah. even if the mental health provision for mm treating mental illness and focusing on increasing mental well-being was perfect even if it was perfect yeah. in terms of the delivery and the provision the environmental factors which impact on the daily lives of people in prison means mm. that it's often unachievable to be mentally well to be mentally well you have to be safe 100 you have to be safe yeah safe you have mm. to be physically safe and you have to be emotionally safe yeah. and actually the prison environment is not a safe environment for people so from my own experience the absolute chaos of noise constantly the effects that that has on your ability to sleep to recharge mm. to re-energize yeah. For, for me as a woman I like to be clean very hygienic yeah and I used to have a shower with flip-flops on with a curtain that had blood stains on mm -hmm. it had hairs all over it and I 
I used to be on tiptoes moving to try and shave my legs and not touch any any of the sides or lean on the sides yeah. and yeah it's all of those factors 100%. which are, mm. are just part and parcel of yes. that environment which yeah. really impact on your ability to be mentally well I think yeah. and I think those things are really important for everyone within that setting to consider so I know we always talk about a whole prison approach to health promotion and that's so important because in that setting it can't just be the mental health team or the mental health practitioners that are responsible for the mental well-being of people in prison because it's impossible yes absolutely yeah I think so so absolutely true Yeah, and I think, Michaela, you've talked before as well um, about the sort of power of peer support as well in prisons. Do you want to say, because we've talked a lot, haven't we, today about how we support ourselves as peers. So it just strikes me it'd be good to talk a little bit about the peer support that happens in prisons as well and how powerful that can be. Yeah, so I think think it's very well known that that peer support is, is a great, kind of area of development and and focus for lots of services that work in a prison setting so I mean we find the benefits that peers are more accessible peers are trusted more by their fellow prisoners um, and it's about having that shared experience of of being in a situation so I think that we see in history actually through the mutual aid groups AA and NA and and the success of Mm. those and and my dad's been in NA and AA for 16 years and he still goes two or three times a week because that's Mm. a community for him yeah and I think that this community building is so important for Mm. well-being um so people in prison are more accessible to each other and they have that shared experience and even just that shared experience makes conversations more easier and authentic so it's easier for someone in prison to go and talk to someone else who's also a prisoner so I think Whilst we're, whilst we're thinking about time to talk and holding space for conversations around mental health, certainly when I was in prison, the, the, the physical barrier of accessing healthcare was a barrier to opening up conversations with healthcare mm-hmm. practitioners about mental health. So yeah. who else is there? If, if we want to facilitate and open this space, but we know in prisons that there are physical barriers which prevent this yeah. with healthcare yeah. professionals. <clears throat> we need to look elsewhere about where we can build and facilitate that space for these conversations. And that's with mm-hmm. peers. Absolutely. So that is with people on the wings who we can train up and we can support to be able to hold this space for conversations. Yeah. And I think that we see it developing. I, I yeah. don't think that mm-hmm. we have a true understanding of the benefits of peer support and what it really means to people who access it and, and people who deliver it. So mm-hmm. we see a lot of people 
in the lived experience space who started out as peers and it's yeah. led to a lifelong career trajectory of yeah. wanting to support others and, yes. and being able to, to do that effectively. And I think that within prison healthcare, we've we've got a bit of a way to go in in really understanding how beneficial it is to a service. And I think that even just the point of the physical barriers of access to healthcare is mm. enough reason to be thinking about where else can we do this. Um, yeah, I was just thinking, Michaela, uh, sorry to cut you. I was just thinking on that point. Yeah. It just struck, it, it, it's, it's such a powerful thing you've said because I was mm. just thinking there's the physical barriers of prison, absolutely. But if we if we think one step further and we think about the the minority communities that we have in prison, people mm. that speak a different language, um, yeah. peer support becomes invaluable in terms of mm. maintaining a spirit of community. And to have people that can understand you in your own language, yeah, there's such subtleties when it comes to well-being and mental health. Mm. of emotion and and the vocabulary to talk about emotions is so different from yeah. language to language yeah. that mm. things get lost in translation yeah totally um, and so yeah. peers become such an important thing to provide that sense of community and and to provide stability for people mm. so yeah that's yeah. such a powerful thing you've said absolutely yeah i think so very powerful um and I think, you know, your comments really about mental health, not just being the responsibility of um, mental health practitioners is also important. And I think you've really emphasised the point that I'm always making, which is that, you know, we need to move away from the diagnostic model because yeah. somebody who comes into prison who has a history of depression and isn't seen as depressed, we need to take into account the context of the fact that they're in prison, the cough from the family, the conditions that you've described, the trauma, you know, all these other factors that in a community would mean somebody wasn't particularly seen as at risk because they could contact their family, they could go to the gym, they could go for a walk, they could go to the pub, they could do all the things that they normally do to cope and keep themselves well. But in prison, when all those things are taken away from somebody, you know, of course, you know, the risk of, um, you know, mental, poor mental health is, is much higher. And I think that's where, you know, we need a cultural shift. And obviously we've started to work on that, which is, which is good, but I think, you know, the points that you've made are just so powerful, really, there, Michaela. So um, I'm aware that we're coming to the end because yeah. we could probably talk all day about this, couldn't we? It's been a fascinating conversation. So I'm just wondering if we try and end it on a positive as well by sharing some of our um, thoughts if we go around around for time to talk there, around any messages that we'd give the people that are struggling with their mental health from our own experiences. So, um, Michaela, just going around the screen, do you want to start? So, yeah, I think I think a key message for me, which which I suppose isn't isn't directed at people that might be struggling. I think for me uh, and my experience of people in prison and that setting is that even knowing the concept of it's okay to talk and time to talk. The, the barriers that I've spoken about in, in this um, interview today are are so ingrained within the system that mm. sometimes you can have all the knowledge and, and the access isn't there. So I suppose 
my key message and plea is for people that work in prisons and places of detention that we recognize those barriers those physical barriers those language barriers those cultural barriers and that we as a collective we open and facilitate the space for those conversations yeah. and we don't place the responsibility on those i think even just in the context of of mental ill health outside of a prison setting it's mm. very difficult in states of depression and anxiety and that's from my experience i i do not have any diagnosed mental illnesses but from, from my mum's experience who does the the compounding effects of that on on a life means that the ability to have those conversations is often not there because of mental illness because of states of depression mm. so so my message and, and plea is to facilitate the conversations with people and yeah. kind of um reciprocate that but but I don't think that the expectation from a professional stance should be that we expect people to to come and tell us because yeah. we know that there are lots of things which affect that mm. and, and mean that often it's not possible yeah mm. yeah yeah I totally agree with you yeah Tanya I think um I think Michael has covered so much that really yeah. my message is I think let's just see people as people. Mm. Let's just relate to people as, as another human being. Let's see the human being. And let's remember that as human beings, we um we need to connect. And it's connection yeah. that leads to change. So yeah. let's connect with people. Let's ask questions. Let's not wait for people to come to us. Let's just ask questions. Let's just be curious enough to wonder how people might be. Um, and yeah. let's, let's be genuine about it. Let's mm. not, it's not a tick box exercise. It's it's okay. a genuine ask. So I think my message is be kind and compassionate to others. See them as you want to be seen yourself. Um, and I think that's that that's going to take us somewhere. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Sorry, can I just jump in before you say yours? You can. Um, Tanya, what, what you said earlier when I was talking about letting my daughter have days off for school for mental for mental well-being, um, you said something which I think needs to be a key message for anyone listening to this on Time to Talk Day, which is it's not something that's wrong with you. Yeah. So mm -hmm. declines in mental health and mental well-being have so many factors poverty housing Absolutely. employment mm -hmm. and, and I think all of us understanding that when we have bad days that it isn't something that is wrong with us is a really important message for people to feel brave enough to talk about yes. what's happening to them yeah no I agree it's really important I think for me um you know I would just echo everything that you've both just said and and I think the comments about being kind as well and looking out for other people is is really important as well and just you know building a community and being part of a community I also think that you know time to talk day is is just one day and I know a lot of people are quite critical of these one day awareness campaigns and and I and I do totally understand that 
Um, but I also think that, you know, if it if you've got one, even if it's just one day where somebody tunes into the Time to Talk campaign and thinks, actually, I'm going to contact my neighbour or I'm going to speak to my friend who I know is struggling at the moment. If it makes a difference to one person's life, then I think it's really important. And that's not to say that, you know, it, it's going to be, um, you know, the way to solve problems around mental health and it's going to be the panacea. But I think that um, having these campaigns and encouraging people to talk about the mental health and, and to help other people is a good thing. Um, the other thing for me that I've reflected on during this conversation is that um, we've got our mental health conference on the 20th of February. And for the next couple of weeks after this, we've got some featured discussions around health injustice. And um, it's a nice segue, really, because I think we've talked a lot about intersectionality today inadvertently, which is a theme for our event. And I think for me, having the theme for the conference around intersectionality was very much about helping people to understand the different layers that make up an individual and how they interact with each other and how they make up the person. And that's not just people we work with, but that's also how those different parts of ourselves make up who we are as well. So I think without realising, it's quite a nice introduction into next week's yeah. MHTV as well. So I'll leave it there. And um, if you're listening, thanks for listening. And do put some comments on Facebook Live or on Twitter, and we will pick those up later on. Thank you all. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs>